Welcome to the Family Fright Night Horror Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chase Will. Welcome to the Family Fright Night Horror Podcast. Today I'm joined by a super awesome dude named Jasper Bark. He is a novelist. He writes graphic novels, writes children's books. He's done just about everything a writer can aspire to do and more. Jasper, how are you doing today? I am very, very well. Um, I probably should also explain that most of the things I did as a writer, possibly no writer should be forced to. And I was young <laughs> and I really did need the money. <laughs> Damn, man, that's one way to start out. <laughs> so how's it going there? You're over in England, you said, right? UK. That's right. Um, it's kind of okay. We're just sidling into autumn. Um, I have apple trees in my backyard. I spent the weekend clambering around up them like a demented monkey, <laughs> filling work baskets full of apples that are now stuffed in my fridge. <laughs> Keep the produce up, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You have to have something to kind of throw the, um, at the peasants when they form a mob full of um pitchforks <laughs> and uh and and lit torches and they want to come and um you know because uh, dr frankenstein has been chased out so the next person they look for is the horror writer in town <laughs> jasper <laughs> so i this start off a- uh i start each episode asking what is your all-time favorite horror movie do you have one i think um Obviously, I imagine like most people listening to this podcast and like most people you've had on and yourself, Chase, um, I've watched a whole shit ton of of horror movies. And it's probably one of my favorite forms of of entertainment. And it's one of the best ways of winding down and relaxing. I think since childhood, my favorite movies and TV shows have always been horror anthologies, whether it's absolute classics like The Twilight Zone or Outer Limits or um, uh, Boris Karloff's Thriller, all the way through to um, uh, modern. And in fact, actually, I love kind of like strange, um, little hardly heard of um, uh, anthology horror shows um, like The Hitchhiker um, and and other weird um, little single season anthologies so my favorite shows particularly when I was growing up as a kid and um, I had to sneak downstairs to watch horror movies because they'd be on past my bedtime so I'd have to wait till my parents were asleep and then sneak down the very old creaking stairs in my parents house and turn the tv down to a tiny 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 little volume and sit there with my ear pressed against the speaker um my favorite um often because I'd kind of usually miss the first 10 minutes of a movie um were the anthology shows, um, things like um, uh, the original uh, Tales from the Crypt, uh, From Beyond, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. But my all-time favourite anthology horror movie, and possibly my all-time favourite horror movie, is a 1945 movie called Dead of Night. And it's I about a group of um, there is a 1972 excellent made-for-TV movie, which is based on uh, the amazing author Richard Matheson's short stories. And, and Richard Matheson is, is a god amongst horror writers. Um, and if you haven't read his work, then rectify that now. Um, stop listening to this podcast. Go straight to Amazon. Buy yourself a collection of Richard Matheson stories. Then come back and keep listening. But The Dead of Night I'm talking about isn't that amazing TV show, which is probably up there and amongst my favourite anthologies. It's a 1945 black and white film um, that's actually made by um, Ealing Studios, which is an English company. 
And it's about a guy who drives to an old country house and he's filled with this feeling that he's been there before, that he's experienced these things before and he knows what's going to happen even before it happens. Uh, and he sits around a fire with the other residents of the home or the people who just have to be dropping into this big old rambling country house. And each one of them tells uh, a ghost story. Um, and each one of them, this is entirely dependent upon at a time, 1945, they can't show any blood, they can't show any gore, the special effects are truly atrocious. So everything is done by building atmosphere and through performance. And it culminates in, in the quintessential um, terrifying doll story uh, about a ventriloquist dummy called Hugo. And it, um, if it doesn't scare you, then quite frankly, you have a backbone of titanium. And it totally freaks people out. Even to this day, some nearly 60, 70 years later, it, it's the ending of that movie is one of the most terrifying, the last story. Oh, wow. I need to find that one. What was it called again? It's called Dead of Night, 1945. Of night. Um, it's made by uh, about um, four different directors. Each of them does a different um, uh, horror story within the horror story. And there's the main ongoing horror story, which itself really wraps up extremely nicely with an excellent little twist at the end and, and manages after the big scare of the last story with the ventriloquist dummy, a demonic ventriloquist dummy that takes over its owner. Um, even the little twist at the end of the, the story that houses all the story, the portmanteau story, even that twist is excellent. Uh, really engaging. And you go, oh, and I've watched it loads of times. And it was one of the early movies. I have two daughters um, who are now grown up. And um, last weekend, they actually, both of them left home, want to go to college, want to start a job. And um, they watched horror movies with me as they were growing up. And that was like the introductory horror story that I always start them off on. Uh, and both of them um, as 10-year-old um, kids that would have been all middle graders, um, actually probably still in elementary school because um, I, I started them early, precocious horror lovers. Um, that was the um, introductory movie for them, um, and it's still a family favourite. Have you made them watch the uh, old Hammer Horror series? Oh, God, yes. Oh, man, those were great. Hammer's, Hammer's major competitor in, in Britain at the time was an American company who worked over here called Amicus, and they worked over here with British actors and British directors because there were so many tax breaks in the 60s and 70s. Um, and they, Amicus, were the company who used all the ha um, Hammer Horror stars, all the Hammer Horror directors, but they used them to make these portmanteau movies I was mentioning. Um, and, and that's why some of the best um, horror movies in the late 60s, early 70s were actually made here in Britain and over oh, yeah. in Europe as well. There were bigger tax breaks there too. <laughs> it's all about the money, right? <laughs> it's always about the money. <laughs> So let's get into your writing a bit. I'm curious, are you somebody who outlines or do you kind of just, uh, what they call it, pantsing, I think? Um, plotting or pantsing? Do yeah. you know, at the moment, I'm I'm preparing um, both a um, something for my YouTube channel and I'm also doing um, a masterclass on plotting for Crystal Lake Academy, which is, it is like a, similar to the masterclass, but it's um, purely using horror authors on just the very subject of plotting. Um, and to be honest with you, what I've discovered over the years, having endless conversations with writers about whether they plot or whether they pants. Um, when I started out, I was a bit of a hack. Um, I, was a, I, I changed from being a journalist to being a scriptwriter. 
and then from uh, mainly writing comics and graphic novels for a living. And then I changed from being a, a comics writer into being a novelist who also did graphic novels. Um, and in my early days, the first four or five novels that I sold uh, mainstream publishers, you had to hand in a, a breakdown, a plot and a chapter breakdown, every single chapter before they even decided whether or not they'd buy the book off you. Um, and this was writing for companies as various as um, uh, New Line Cinema, um, their publishing wing or um, their games workshop. I, I did books much to my shame for them. And I um, <laughs> later on did books um, in other people's franchises. They wanted to break it down. So my first novels, I didn't really have a choice. I had to break down the plot and I had to tell my editor everything that was going to happen before it did. Um, so when I wrote my first novels for myself, I sort of started doing that. And I found that some stories do benefit from you thinking out at least a couple of chapters ahead, if not the whole lot. Whereas other stories get really impatient with you. You can faff about sitting down, writing out what's going to happen. And they just are, they get very um, annoyed with you, grab you by the back of the neck and just say, just write me. Stop. This is not helping. Get to the meat. Um, so I find um, even in, in a long novel, there's bits of the novel uh, I have no idea what's going to happen next, and that's the way it should be, and I will find out, and it will surprise me as it happens. Um, in other parts of a novel, I will need in advance because I might have something quite technical um, or something quite complex that I need to work it out. So I plot or I pants as the story demands, and sometimes the story just wants to be pantsed. Sometimes it wants to be plotted a bit. Sometimes it wants to be plotted a lot. Um, and even within the story itself, some parts of it you shouldn't plot, plot at all. Just let the story organically grow of its own accord. Other times, plot a little bit so you don't get lost in the woods and find yourself wandering around for ages, ending up stark naked, stumbling upon a um, group of um, Girl Scouts. <laughs> that can end you in prison. <laughs> <laughs> They'll throw apples even, at you. Even if it's just a metaphor for getting lost in your story. <laughs> So given you've been doing this quite a long time, like what are some of the ways writing has changed for you? Um, when I started, um, there were no ebooks. So I did actually begin my career that long ago. Um, so you only ever got published, you got printed in, in pro zines or fanzines. Um, and I, I got printed in both. Um, uh, or you got printed in books. Um, and, and in those days, there were little small indie books. And there were um, there were large publishers. Um, Self-publishing wasn't the option then that it is now because the only um, distribution network you had, I started before Amazon actually launched, was through bookshops um, or buying direct from the publisher, but which most people didn't because online kind of like merchandising was in its infancy. Um, so it was very, very hard. I mean, there were guys um, who made living selling um, books at the back of their cars um you could go around conventions and you could get yourself a stand and you could physically hand books to people and take money from them but there wasn't the um option uh that there is today uh amazon where authors can take control of every single step of the process of publishing and empower themselves and keep all of the profits so that's probably the biggest seismic shift so that every author, whether you work in mainstream, whether you're totally indie, um, whether you work with a smaller publisher, whether you work with a larger publisher, has to be aware of every element of publishing in a way that 
back when I started, you handed a manuscript over either to an agent or an editor, and that was it. They sent you um, your advance, and then they sent you royalties. Has it now made it easier or harder for you? Is it more of a headache or less of a headache now? To be honest with you, there's more that you have to think about because um, often you're more involved. Uh, I wasn't even consulted about the covers of my books when I sold my first novels. In fact, um, uh, the first novel I ever sold was for a 2000 AD character called Strontium Dog, who was like a mutant bounty hunter, uh, very big in Europe. Um, and um, my uh, editor ballsed up and um, uh, announced the wrong title in the series. I was writing one of the books in the series and they announced my book with the wrong title. So my book got a complete title change and my title got fobbed off on another writer because the editor got the got the schedule wrong. <laughs> so I, I got, my book was ended up being called A Fistful of Strontium, um, which is a much better title than mine, which was Day of the Dogs. And the, the poor author who'd come up with a much better title got stuck with my title and I, I got his. <laughs> and I didn't find out till they sent me a box of books. Oh, wow. That's uh, one way of finding out, I guess. It certainly is. So when this airs, it'll probably be closer to Halloween. What do you do for the Halloween season? Anything special? Do you know, Halloween is quite a new import here in the UK. When I was growing up as a kid, um, it was known in my country as Mischief Night. Um, growing up, what we did, which was like an industrial kind of quite poor blue collar part of the northwest of England. If you knocked on someone's door and said, uh, give me um, sweets or I will uh, pull a trick on you, you'd get punched in the face. So you kind of knew <laughs> that you went straight to the trick. There was no treat. No one was ever going to get treats. These were miserable northerners. You were just it, it kind of imagine we all sounded, though I don't now, a bit like the wildlings, but on the wall. Um, the folk that John um, <laughs> Star goes to go and um, spend time with. Um, so that was it. That went in north of England. So it was known as mischief night. So basically, as this little little kid, you went out and you um, engaged in acts of petty vandalism or kind of general mischief. Um, and the older you got, the kind of the more extreme those acts got. So we'd start by leaving a bag of flaming dog shit on someone's doorstep, <laughs> ringing the bell, and, and running off. Well, and the fact was. Most of those um, people who who uh, had done that same trick themselves like 20 years earlier. So there was one occasion I and my friends at about seven years old were giggling behind someone's um, uh, hedge row uh, after ringing the doorbell and leaving the flaming bag of dog shit. And the guy got a shovel, picked up the um, the bag of dog shit, unknowns to us as we we're hiding, going, <laughs> um, and he actually flipped the bag of dog shit over the hedge and it landed, this flaming dog shit on our heads. <laughs> we ran screaming. <laughs> Yes, desserts. <laughs> it was. It was. Years later, we indulged in, in acts of full on vandalism. But um, I'm not sure if the statute of limitations is still open on them, so I'll keep my mouth shut. Oh, you better. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we talked about your uh, favorite horror movie from a while ago. What is the latest horror movie, though, that's really stuck with you? Like, what's the last thing you saw that kind of stayed out in your mind for days? Oh, um. Midsummer, I thought was absolutely excellent. I love the lighthouse and the witch, and I absolutely um, love Jordan Peele stuff. I think Us was my favorite of his, but I absolutely love Nope. Nope was pretty good. That. 
in the theatre, and I'm so glad that I did. That was a superb film. I, and I love the fact, particularly about us and Nope, that uh, two-thirds of the way in, the movie just takes a, a complete left turn, and it's so not the movie that you think you're watching, and it becomes something so totally different. And I love that. Um, and it's one of the things that Jordan Peele does brilliantly well, I think. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, so I, I guess Ari Aster is a, a, a director whose work I really, really love, and I look forward to seeing his films. Um, and I have to say that Jordan Peele is another. And the guy who did The Lighthouse and the Witch, whose name is Robert Eggers. Eggers, yeah. Another, another excellent. So I guess those are directors at the moment that they're, they're pushing at the, um, at the envelope with regards to what film can do, but particularly what genre horror can do, uh, oh, yeah. which I find really exciting. Yeah, some people call that um, elevated horror. How do you feel about that term? Um, it, it's difficult, isn't it? Because um, uh, the thing we all love about horror is it's a dirty, nasty genre. And the reason you like working in it is you can kind of slightly fly under the radar. You can do and say some slightly subversive things. You can upset people. You can the, the whole genre is about playing with taboos and looking at those areas that are just outside of good taste. Um, and and that's I think what all of us who watch it and work in horror love about it. Um, but we also we are. Sorry to use, I'm going to use a horrible word. Please excuse me. We are artists as well. We're creative <laughs> individuals. We want to do the absolute best we possibly can with our work. And sometimes that means elevating up to art, even by accident. Just because we've thought about it so much, we've tried to do it so effectively, maybe it becomes a work of art. Um, it's maybe um, so that the act of wanting to create to push horror into areas it's not been before and to give people experiences whether it be a reading experience or a watching experience of horror that never had before is a worthy thing and if by accident we happen to elevate our genre that's a good thing you know but um uh i think it's something that i would as a person as a writer myself get to it's not the top of my agenda top of my agenda is just telling a story that will grip someone by the back of the neck and and keep their attention for the entire length, whether it's a, a five-page short story or a 500,000-word novel. Oh, yeah. Well, I like about all those movies that you mentioned, too, is they're very divisive. Like, you can have a conversation very actively with somebody, whether or not you like them, dislike them, you know, the highs and the lows of it. Mm. Like uh, Ari Aster's movie Hereditary, like, I've argued ad nauseum with people about why that's a great movie and oh, I, I know people who love it i know people who hate it <laughs> it's one of my favorites of all time um i i think i'm very drawn to to uh filmmakers and authors that do that, that create these arguments anyway rob zombies are the perfect example of somebody who totally splits opinion and mm. and even though you know, I only probably like half of his movies, and even then, perhaps only like half of the movies of his that I like. The fact that he pushes your buttons is something that attracts me to him as an artist. Oh yeah. Um, so, so that's I mean, that's what really good horror should do. It should split opinion. Dario um, Argento is another classic. His classic work splits opinions hugely. People think he's ridiculously pretentious, or people think he's an artistic god. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any middle ground. Oh, it never is. No, it's either right or wrong, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> People will die on those hills. Although oh, yeah. I don't want to climb up those hills and fight them. <laughs> Bring your apples with you. <laughs> <laughs> I will. <laughs> So um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are writers and actors and other kinds of creators. Being someone who's been in the business for quite a long time, you know, since before the ebook revolution, mm. what kind of advice would you give that would be helpful to somebody starting out? Um, I think you have to understand um, how you wish to, uh, how much of your professional life you want to devote to uh, creating horror. Um, and how much um, of your income you're going to effectively risk on horror or what you're comfortable with. There are a lot of writers, and writing is kind of obviously the creative profession of the best, for whom writing is like a secondary career. It's something that they make um, five to $10,000 a year out of. That's not enough to support them and make their contribution to the to their families if they have them or you know just the just general upkeep and paying of their bills but it's something that pays um for an extension on their house um or it pays for a really good holiday once a year or it pays for their ridiculously out of control book movie and video game buying habits so um <laughs> Or do you want to risk everything and kind of um, live on your wits effectively as a professional? If you do, you have to be aware of how able you are to deal with risk because the risk is always with income. If you are a self-published um, author, even then you're dealing with a particular risk profile. You don't know month to month uh, what your sales are going to be. You can do certain things to help boost them. Uh, that involves more investment. Um, if you have a portfolio career where you work with some mainstream um, or some indie publishers or you work with other indie publishers and you publish yourself, you still, if, if it, that's the thing that's going to pay your bills, you have to be able to ride right up to the very edge of your overdraft and hold your nerve. Um, and cross your fingers and hope to heck the that check is going to come through. Those sales are actually going to happen like you wanted. And that's not necessarily a lifestyle that everybody wants to have, particularly if they've got responsibilities like a mortgage and hungry children and a very um, you know ticked off partner who's permanently pissed at them for never quite winning the bread they were supposed to. Um, so um, that that's a the first thing to really think about how much of my day-to-day -day income do I want to depend upon um, being creative, writing, acting, um, uh, directing any of those um, or other artistic professions, how much is going to come from this uh, uh, and how much is going to come from a more um, stable, regular form of employment. Mm. Um, I'm Sorry, what? I so you mentioned video games. Do you play those a lot? I, I, do, do you know what? I'm absolutely hopeless as a gamer. I am totally, totally <laughs> useless. Yet when I worked as a journalist um, on several of the magazines um, I edited um, or edited sections of, I inherited like the game section. Um, and I, I really could not play game. I, I would just blow up whatever it was or kind of crash or drive into a wall, whatever game I was playing. I actually had to get friends of mine around who were gamers and provide them with beers and get them to play games for me while I took notes. <laughs> Even though the companies would send me all the consoles and all the games, I was still that hopeless. <clears throat> and then when um, 
for a little while as well, when I was um, uh, writing comics and graphic novels mainly, I was also brought in to do uh, bits of script, um, sometimes uh, various different uh, script, different areas of script um, for various video games, whether it's like writing a hundred different reactions of having a grenade thrown into a hole um, through to certain sections of dialogue scenes coming up with kind of plots. I did a lot of that. Um, and even then, I had to actually ask people to play the game for me so I'd know which bit to to kind of work when it panned away and we had a little bit of plot. Um, so I'm hopeless, but I have been involved professionally with video games for decades, <laughs> although they should never have allowed me ever to have done that. <laughs> oh, you're in good company because I suck at video games. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what do you yes. have coming up and where can people find you? Um, coming up, my uh, one of my publishers, Crystal Lake Publishing, are about to relaunch all the books I currently have with them, uh, which would be Stuck in Your Other Prime Cuts, Run to Ground, The Final Cut, and Quiet Places. They're about to relaunch those as a as a new overall series, a bit like a um, a grown up um, Goosebumps uh, or a kind of sexed up scary story to tell in the dark. Um, and that's going to be called Bark Bites Horror. Um, and once they've launched those four as uh, as a series, Bark Bites Horror, or relaunch them, um, I have a trilogy of novels uh, which fall under the heading called Draw You In, and they're coming out afterwards. That should be coming out um, next year. I'm currently at work on um, a, a project uh, called Dark Tides with... Um, uh, Matt Shaw and Daniel Volpe, and we're each contributing a um, uh, a novella um, to this project. And I'm also writing, like, a, mentioning like um, anthology horror stories. Each one of these stories is is part of a larger story, and I'm writing the overall linking story for that. And I have um, five years ago, um, I raised um, thousands of dollars for a um, a graphic novel called. Beyond Lovecraft, um, and the artist fell um, terminally ill and started cranking out pages at the kind of speed of like one a one a decade, it seems. But he's finally finished it. So after six years ago of a successful um, campaign, um, the artist has finished this graphic novel, which has been hanging over my head, Beyond Lovecraft, um, and that's going to be released with Marcosia who are Britain's leading publisher of graphic novels. So that, that in a nutshell, I suppose that's quite a few projects, isn't it? That's what I've that got coming a lot. up. That is a lot of projects. Oh, my don't, God. Don't tell me that because I'll start to stress. <laughs> well, don't stress. Don't stress. You could take out at least five more projects. Yeah, of course I can. I, <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I've got a few hairs that still aren't great. Yeah, there's, there's room for more stress. <laughs> well, Jasper, thank you so much for joining. This has been really fun, man. I've had an absolute blast. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been loads of fun, man. Well, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.